to episode 223 of Late Night Linux, recorded on the 27th of March, 2023. I'm Joe, and with me are Phelim. Hi, hi. Graham. Good evening. And Will. Hello. You're still here, Phelim, despite numerous dropouts. Yeah, I, I welded the cable back together myself, popped out there for five minutes and uh, sorted them. Yeah, well, no one noticed, thankfully, hopefully. Maybe. <laughs> Let's get on with our discoveries then. So let's start with you, Fader, before you drop out again. Uh, what is Chob? Well, I was getting a bit fed up looking for an application to see if it was A, in the app repository, B, Snap, C, Flathub, and apparently there's app images, which I don't use. <laughs> so I said, surely somebody has put something together that is a bit better than me just running it through the various commands in a, a for loop. Kind of. It unfortunately doesn't find everything. Like I looked up your YT DLP oh, yeah. thing, Graham. Didn't find it. I have no idea why. I wonder, is it the dash? Did it think it was an option or something? I have no idea. And it doesn't do apt either. So, I mean, of all the things, I've not really chosen a really spectacular bit of software, but it does have a cache. It can quickly search things and you can kind of select them to install, which is kind of nice because it gives you an option of like, Zero one two. I'm looking at VLC. Say there's an app image, Flathub and Snapcraft version of it, and I thought that was quite cool. I mean, obviously, I could use Discover if I really wanted to, but sometimes it's nice on a server just to quickly blast out, and it would be nice to have something that did all of them. So maybe I will just resort to an alias and do it that way. But anyway, in case people wanted a nice application, it is a nice application, and it's written in Go now. He changed it from TypeScript back in the day, so worth a look. So you just need to download the binary, make it executable, and run it? Yeah, stick it in a path or whatever. Uh, I put it in a home bin directory, and that was good enough for it. So, yeah, nice and easy. Stick it on your desktop like I do with Firefox. <laughs> Stop. <laughs> no, it's in my home directory, to be fair. I used to stick it on the desktop just to troll you. <laughs> <laughs> so to be clear, this only searches flat hub snaps and app image, but you have also got apt cache search or apt search these days, I suppose it would be. Yeah, but there'd be a for loop with two things in it, wouldn't it? I might as well just do a for loop with four or five things in it, even though I have no idea where you look for app images, not a clue, in fact. So yeah, I mean, there is value here still. Yeah, it's something to use if you can't find it in the repo, I suppose. Exactly. And uh, you seem to not be keen on Lenovo motherboards. I do not. Uh, yeah, fair enough. You can't look a gift horse in the mouth. So I got a free PC. Liam's been using it for his stuff. And uh, yeah, it's great. Went to upgrade the graphics card. Turns out uses a 10-pin non-standard power supply. What a share bastard. Mm. So managed to get an adapter that can convert a standard ATX power supply to it. Worked. I was a bit scared, a bit skeptical. Thought, Jesus, is going to go up in a big blue flash. But no, worked fine. Card got running, had to move it to a new case. Of course, didn't, the pins didn't fit because no, most of them are non-standard as well. Oh. It was like about five teetering on one corner of it. It's like, yeah, okay, don't press on that side. You'll short the board out. Anyway, it's all good. Worked in a, tr- a charm. Turn it off. Why do I hear something? And I had oh. to look down, took it apart. The bloody power supply fan still spins because oh. there's apparently some magic goes on with one of the cables on the 10 pin Lenovo power supply so fuck those guys and if they really want the empire of supporting Lenovo power supplies they're welcome to it share our <laughs> souls so I'll get a new motherboard at some point but at the moment it's a nice processor loads of RAM 
great graphics card. Yeah, it's good enough for the while. Is this a Think Center then? Yeah. Uh, let me try and think what the model number is. Something like an M. No, I don't know. It's a complicated name. I can't remember it, but yeah. It's like a MIDI terror sort of thing. Relatively new. It was like from one of those office clear out things. And yeah, it was going to go on a skip. So, I mean, it's a fantastic processor and it's actually really good. And it's only like a, a hair behind my PC. I mean, obviously that's a 2018 PC I've got, but it's still pretty decent. And it does all the stuff he needs it to. So yeah, better than the 2011 laptop he was slumming it on there prior to. So yeah, happy days. Good luck trying to fit a standard motherboard in it. Oh, yeah, no. See, luckily I had an old ATX case, so I actually moved it all into that because, yeah, the graphics card didn't fit at all. It was, like, too long. So uh had another case, moved it to that, and but the motherboard holes on the Lenovo motherboard don't quite fit all of the ATX pin positions. So just proprietoriness, just stop. Stop it. Will, chirp plant alarm. I love my plants a bit too much and kill them repeatedly by giving them too much water because they look a little bit funny. And so I've been looking for something to help take the guesswork out of watering my house plants. And obviously, I want it to hook into my home automation system and you know send me a push message when they need watering <laughs> and that sort of thing. And I've been looking for something like this for years. And because I'm also tight, I didn't want to spend more than a couple of quid on such a device. And I found nothing uh, until recently. And I came across Chirp, which has been around for a long time, many, many years, maybe nearly 10 years, I think, the um, no, 11 years the, the repo has been around for. And it's a, a really straightforward device, which is an open hardware device. The firmware is all open source. And the deal is it's got a watch battery on it, which powers the whole thing. It's got a tiny microprocessor on it, a beeper, and an LED. And you put it into your plant when it's about the right moisture, press the button to sort of initialize it, and then it's a capacitive moisture sensor, which means that the electrodes won't erode over the course of a couple of months. It should keep working for a, for a long time, for years. And when it detects the capacitance of the soil has dropped below a certain threshold, it will start chirping, and it just turns the, the beeper off very, very quickly for a, a, about a second or something like that. And I can already hear you say, but that will get really annoying when it goes off in the middle of the night. And this is what I love about this device, is that it uses the LED, it runs it in reverse mode in order to detect whether it's dark or not. <laughs> and if it is dark, it won't beep. And it does it with the same LED it uses to flash to indicate that there's that, that it needs watering. And that was brilliant. You can buy these things on Tindy. They're about $15. Or if you look on AliExpress, you can pick them up for pretty much next to nothing. I would urge people to buy at least one from the original seller, the developer of this box. But it's just really nice. It's got a header on it so that you can hook it into another microcontroller if you want to make it wireless. It's nice and hackable. The software is all open source. It's all in KiCad if you want to take the PCB designs and tweak it. The schematics are there. The bomb's there. Everything you need. It's just a nice, straightforward project, and it addresses a real need in my life. There's one fatal flaw in what you've described <laughs> here, Will. You said that you have to calibrate it to when the moisture level is correct but it sounds like you haven't got a clue what that is well you know not sopping wet not bone dry 
You see, what's going to happen is he's going to have loads of dead plants, but really <laughs> fresh batteries and all his fire alarms. When you said one fatal flaw, I thought you were going to say it's not based on an ESP32. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that is a very good point. Yeah, and it's not Risk Five either. Yeah. <laughs> well, like maybe I'll download the uh, the KiCash files and make it a Risk Five. <laughs> And so have your plants fared better with this then? It hasn't told me any of them need watering yet. So I have actually stopped watering them until it beeps. So that's probably good for them. But come back next week and I'll tell you if they're dead. (laughs) Yeah, I got told off for watering my wife's plants too much when she went away once. Streptocarpus, I think they are. And uh, they need a lot of water, but intermittently. And I just kept watering them. And she was like, what the fuck have you done? You've nearly killed it. And uh, she was very annoyed. So I could have done with something like this. Should have told me about this about three years ago. (laughs) Okay, this episode is sponsored by Collide. And Collide has some big news. If you're an Okta user, they can get your entire fleet to 100% compliance. If a device isn't compliant, the user can't log into your cloud apps until they fix the problem. It's that simple. Collide patches one of the major holes in zero trust architecture, device compliance. Without Collide, IT struggles to solve basic problems like keeping everyone's OS and browser up to date. Unsecure devices might be logging into your company's apps because there's nothing to stop them. Collide is a simple device trust solution that enforces compliance as part of authentication and it's built to work seamlessly with Okta. The moment Collide's agent detects a problem, it alerts the user and gives them instructions to fix it. If they don't fix the problem within a set time, they're blocked. Collide's method means fewer support tickets, less frustration, and most importantly, 100% fleet compliance. So visit collide.com slash late night Linux to learn more or book a demo. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash late night Linux. Graham, Garmin watch offline sync with PostRunner. Yeah, I think I may have talked about my, I've got a Garmin smartwatch. It's a Phoenix 5. It's about four or five years old. I really love it. It does all the kind of monitoring stuff. But also, I'm kind of into bike riding. I don't. That's not very cool, is it? But I, I do a bit of mountain biking. So I use it to navigate and to track all the stats. Big downside is, of course, that you have to use Garmin's app and web portal to be able to download the data from your watch. Unless you've got PostRunner. So it's not an open source API that Garmin produces, but it's open and it's documented. And a few projects have written their own hooks to access the API. And PostRunner is one of them. It's a brilliant little command line tool that if you want, you can just plug your watch into your computer through its USB connection completely offline. It actually mounts itself as like um, as an MTP or FAT file system. So... PostRunner will just find the files. They're called FIT files. But most importantly, it knows how to interpret all the data in the files. So things like heart rate analysis, temperature, GPS fixes, all the stuff that you've got. Speed, there's loads of stuff depending on what activity you're doing. PostRunner will put this into like a, a local database. It'll update your times, you know, it kind of scores. It gamifies it a bit if you want to all from the command line. But the best thing is that it can generate a web page from all of these stats. And it looks better than Garmin's own rendering of your <laughs> stats. Completely offline, completely static. Um, it's really useful. It's really beautiful, small little tool that does one job extremely well. And I really love it. And it uses the KD oxygen icons. 
<laughs> That's the most important takeaway here. Yeah, it's a bit of a shame it's limited to just Garmin devices. It'd be lovely if it could include other things as well, but I understand they're the only ones that use this kind of fit protocol. So if you're, if you're fortunate enough to have one of these devices, give it a go. I'm afraid my watch would have to use the unfit protocol. <laughs> <laughs> Pete never leaves his seat protocol. I do. I make tea. <laughs> yeah. And you go out walking in the rain as oh, well. I do, yeah, that's true. Walk the dogs. See? Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, you could track exactly how well you're walking the dogs with this. Well, you do that just by the number of minutes of podcasts you've listened to. Pretty much, yeah. It's a, it's a podcast per minute. <laughs> All right, and Ntop NG. Yeah, so I work from home. My internet isn't the fastest here. It's about 44 megabits per second. It doesn't take much for people to do things on the uh, network here for it to swamp the bandwidth. Um, and if I'm in a meeting or if any of us are in meetings, that can be a real pain. And this has happened a few times. And there's no good way for me to monitor network traffic. So... Ntop NG is a good way to do this if ever if you can get it on the device that all your traffic is going through. It's I mean if most people might be familiar with Ntop, which is like top for network traffic. Ntop is a kind of open source core project that's built from that. It's like the next generation version of this. It's open source, so I don't know what features you get if you build it, but the binary downloads are more than enough for like your home. And basically it captures all of the packets, it does some network analysis on those packets, and then creates in a web interface beautiful charts of who's using the bandwidth, what services are using the bandwidth, the endpoints that they're coming from, the local points that they're going to. It'll tell you things like whether it's video streaming, from where, it'll tell you if it's TikTok, for example. And so you can basically find whoever is sucking up your bandwidth. And it's funny that you guys are mentioning how good Steam servers are and whether they do peer-to-peer -peer streaming, because the last time that I used this and I couldn't get through a meeting, it was because somebody was updating Steam on their PC because it just <laughs> took everything, every available, uh, every available byte. It's a pity that it's open source core, but it's a yeah. really great project. And another a slight addition to this is that I use a Fritzbox VDSL modem. And there's an extension for the Fritzbox. It's an undocumented feature that basically dumps the packet analysis as Wireshark packets oh, wow. onto a computer. And NTOPNG can load those Wireshark packets and do all of its magic. So even if you can't get the network going through, the, if you can't install it on the thing where all the traffic's going through and you've got a Fritz box, for example, maybe others do it, you can still do in-depth analysis of everything going through your network. And it's a really useful tool, even if you don't understand a lot about networking, which I definitely don't. Hmm. Problem with the Fritz box is that it's never working. <laughs> oh, <laughs> that's terrible. <laughs> Graeme, you're such a narc. You really are. Spying on your users like that. Oh, I really needed to know who was using the bandwidth. I know, I know. <laughs> oh, all I've got is like these simple tools that show me that everything is being taken. Yeah. <laughs> I could have just kicked everyone off, but I wanted to know what was going on. Properly apportioned blame where, it's, where it needs to be. <laughs> I mean, you can't snoop on people, obviously, because it's all pretty much encrypted end-to-end -end now, but it is useful to know what's using. I mean, it's also useful to see which services are using things, even when you're, you know, maybe you're the only one on the network. Yeah, yeah, no, it is very, it's really good. All right, well, I have discovered Doom Linux, like seemingly everyone else in the world <laughs> over the last week or so. 
this is quite an old project, but I think it was on Slashdot or something. Everyone's talking about it. If you haven't heard, it's a shell script that downloads the relevant stuff and builds an ISO for you that is just enough Linux to run Doom. Now, that said, I couldn't make it work because I'm too thick. I tried it on Zubuntu 23.04 daily image that I'm running on my laptop because I'm just, you know, I like to live dangerously. <laughs> I tried it in a 18.04 VM, a 20.04 VM, a 22.04 VM. And either I had weird sort of make errors and it just wouldn't even build, or I did manage to build an ISO on one of them. I, can't, I think it might have been the 2004, but don't quote me. And uh, I tried to run that and it just didn't work. It just got to a shell. That might have been because it was in a VM. I don't know. But uh, everyone's talking about it, so I thought we had to mention it. I don't suppose any of you lot have tried it. I watched a YouTube video. Does that count? <laughs> yeah, that definitely counts. That's as good as... There didn't seem to be any sound. Is that because I had the mute on the video, or is it without sound? <laughs> well, I'd imagine that was a contributing factor, right? <laughs> well, I know you're quite used to watching videos on mute, Well, <laughs> How do I subtitle that? <laughs> well, I've just realized that I should have tried to boot that ISO that I built on real hardware instead of a VM, but oh well. But yeah, check it out, see if you can do better than I can with it. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash late night Linux, support the show, and get $100 free credit. From their award-winning support, offered 24-7, 365 to every level of user, to ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace, or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. And check out their managed MySQL, Postgres, and MongoDB databases that allow you to quickly deploy a new database and defer management tasks like configuration, managing high availability, disaster recovery, backups, and data replication. Simple and fast to deploy with secure access, their flexible plans include daily backups. So go to linode.com slash late night Linux, create a free account, and you'll get $100 in credit and support the show. That's linode.com slash late night Linux. On to a bit of admin then. First of all, thank you everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate it. You can learn more at latenightlinux.com slash support. And remember, for $10 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed that includes this show, Linux After Dark, and Linux Downtime. And you even get episodes early sometimes. And if you want to get in contact with us, you can email show at latenightlinux.com. And if you want to talk to other listeners, you can join one of the communities at latenightlinux.com slash community. Let's do some feedback then. And Stumpy's got in touch regarding the FOSS funding problem, which is actually something we touched on again in the last episode. Stumpy says, I write this hesitantly, knowing how much you all dislike cryptocurrency. Anyway, <laughs> I thought the Fountain podcast app had two interesting points. Many of us would give back to the shows we love if there was an easy way to do it. Well, now there is. On Fountain, you can stream money to your favourite podcasts for every minute you listen. That was all in quotes. Back to Stumpy. To me, a big part of donations or paying for things is how easy or not it is. I find it a huge pain to donate, given all the different payment platforms out there. The other part is the interesting ability to pay as you stream, that is, pay for what you listen to. It would be interesting to hear, apart from a crypto rant, your thoughts about any tech or just 
the theory of pay-as-you-use, maybe a matrix of payments world that is something that could bridge all these payment platforms and pay for all the bits and pieces of apps installed. If one uses SSHFS constantly, then have micropayments go to the SSHFS wallet as and when you use it. Right, Phelim, tell me everything that's wrong with crypto. I want a 10-minute rant. (laughs) 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 No, not really, not really. So, right, I mean, we have to get that out of the way. Crypto is a pyramid scheme, it's bullshit, yes, et cetera, et cetera, and yes. is not the answer. But you could apply this, in theory, to a non-crypto-based payment thing. You could have, for example, pay-as-you-use software. You know, for, for you set it up, let's say, for every hour that you use Firefox, you send them... 10 pence or whatever it is that you want. You know, you do the maths of it. You you budget it yourself. Let's say a maximum of five pounds per month or whatever. That could all be set up with the right technology. And people have said that crypto is the technology for that. We clearly disagree with that. But that's the principle that he's getting at here with whether it's minutes listened to of a podcast or minutes watched of videos or time used of open source software. Could this in principle work? Well, just no. What a fucking stupid idea. Sorry, <laughs> but they're just if you use a piece of software, then give them some money. You don't need to go through all of this admin and timing how much you use it. Just give them some money and then don't bother all of this pay-as-you-use bullshit. Just if you want to sponsor a piece of software, sponsor a piece of software. Give them a quid. Give them a fiver. Go to their webpage. There will be a button to allow you to do this, and then you're done. And then you don't need to worry about it anymore. That seems like a much more sustainable, easy-to-use model to me. I disagree that it's sustainable. Easy to use, yes. It's far easier to just go, click a button, PayPal or Stripe or whatever, pay them the money, job done. But people need recurring revenue in order for things to be sustainable then they can set up recurring payments on these platforms. The claim that the reason that people don't sponsor open source projects is because it's difficult is not true. They don't do it because they don't want to pay. If you want to pay, you can find a way to set up a a recurring sustainable payment to pretty much any project out there. I agree, kind of. I pay for a KDE membership every year. And that's my way of contributing financially to them. But I don't have anything I can contribute to, say, all the Wii utilities that I might use, because there might be hundreds of them. Micropayments seems like a right pain in the hole, to be quite honest, because nobody's got time for that faff. But I don't know how you would apportion out something. like You almost need to have groups of applications where you could say, right, the kernel-level group gets this much, the desktop environment bit gets this, and then all my... CLI utilities could get this much. Like, I don't know. Like you, you're hardly going to be making 500 payments every year for your top 500 apps, I would assume. Yeah, and bear in mind that most open source applications that you use are not just one thing, are they? They're built on top of loads of other stuff. The only thing I would worry about if we did go for a, a system where you're paying for what you use constantly is that... One of the huge advantages of Fast Stuff is the fact that you can have the app that seems completely bonkers, like 
I don't know, some sort of thing that tells you your plant needs to be watered. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it's, it's, it's all those weird niches that we get to fill, you know, where you wouldn't really have any financial backing for a company to do that work. And it would be lovely that all those people get rewarded in some way, but sometimes ideas just don't make money. Like, I don't know how that advantage is there. Like, whereas we, we benefit from the work of people so often. It's crazy. There are two elements of this question for me. The first is ease of payment. And I think that is a problem, not directly in relation to what Stumpy says, but it shouldn't really be on every single project to set up their own easy payment portal. It would be nice if there's a way to do that. And then the money goes to the associated projects, I think, if your payment details were set up and you can just click a button and pay. But the main thing, and I think I've covered this before, that I want to feel is some kind of ownership. And I think we've never really solved this problem. In supporting a project, you kind of take some ownership or responsibility over it. I mean it in a good way, like you become the member of some kind of club or tribe that you don't get by just kind of passively consuming or paying for something as it goes by. And we haven't solved this problem, but I'd love to like feel like I was part of something. It, it, I don't know. I don't know. But that's really what stops me from doing it because it just requires me to expend some effort and even more than the money. And I just never get around to it unless there's something I want I get out of it like an ARDA subscription and you get convenient access to the latest binaries. The thing is that micropayments have never worked. They've just never taken off. Flatter, for example, the idea of that was really simple. You just topped up your account every month to whatever you decided was your budget. Let's say it was $50 or £50, whatever. And then you would, on your travels around the web, see something you liked, like a great blog post, and, all right, I'm going to flatter that. And, oh, that's a great episode of a podcast. I'm going to flatter that. And, oh, that's a really useful bit of software. I'm going to flatter that. And then at the end of the month, your $50 was divvied up equally between the things that you flattered and they all get your money. Fucking never took off though, did it? Because people want shit for free. Most people want shit for free. And that's what this always comes back to for me is that there are a minority of people who are willing to pay for stuff and the majority of people who won't, unless you make it just ridiculous ridiculously easy for them and a convoluted system of pay as you use i think that that's only going to target the people who are already willing to find the paypal link or the stripe link or whatever it is i think that's the problem with this thinking and it does seem on the surface of it to be quite compelling and dare i say it almost an argument for crypto because of the potentially low transaction fees or whatever there are huge problems with that. Let's not get into the crypto rant, but it's almost an argument for that. But then again, it's just a small club of people who are willing to pay for stuff. And I, I talk from personal experience here, no offense to people who are listening totally for free and listening to the adverts, or whatever, that's fine. But the people who are subscribed on Patreon or send PayPal payments, whatever, are a fraction, a tiny fraction of the listenership of this show and all the other shows I've ever been involved with because most people just want shit for free. And that's just the reality of the world we're living in, unfortunately. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Entroware. Go to entroware.com. Entroware sells computers with Ubuntu and Ubuntu Mate pre-installed. They've got a range of desktops, laptops, and servers, and most parts are configurable, so you can pick the CPU, RAM, and storage that's right for you. 
If you can't find exactly what you want, then do contact them and they'll work with you on a bespoke solution that's perfect for your needs. They ship to the UK, Republic of Ireland, France, Germany, Italy and Spain. And if you do buy one of their machines, there's a little drop down at checkout and you can select late night Linux so they'll know that we sent you. So go to entroware.com for all your Linux computing needs. Moni wrote in to say, you recently talked about how well games run on Proton. I would even go one step further and say that games running on Proton work better on Linux than their native Linux counterparts. As a matter of fact, I don't even bother to run native Linux games anymore and always force them to run under Proton. Just to give an example, sound does not work on the native Linux version of Transport Fever, but under Proton, it works perfectly. Is that like uh, one of those trucking games? Is it like a Euro Truck Simulator or something? No, it's where you start off with a cold on a train and you see how far it spreads. All right. (laughs) I'm not a game developer, but if I was one, I would be crazy to release a native Linux game. The infinite permutations allowed by Linux makes it impossible to guarantee a stable experience. I wouldn't want to spend hours trying to track down a regression because somebody decided to run my game on a lesser-known distro, remix, or even a custom installation. Last year, there were blog posts and discussions about how Win32 is the only stable ABI on Linux, and I have to agree with the developers making this point. Like you said, Valve's message to developers is just target Proton and we'll take care of the rest. I have been downvoted on Reddit and Hacker News for making this comment, but I would like to put it to you. Native commercial Linux games are dead. This seems very defeatist, but also very pragmatic at the same time. I don't think I remember seeing that post because I do remember seeing somebody mention this before. It's an interesting point. I still have a few Linux games that work fine. Now, I don't know what... I mean, the advantage is if you did target something like Proton and you did manage to get it working, you could get your game on there and have other people and other devices technically play it. I think I kind of agree. I thought I'd be more interested in whether games were native or not on the Steam Deck, and I'm just not interested as long as they kind of play somehow. I still like it when games are kind of built with cross-platform in mind. I like it when they're games like SDL and you can just compile it on Linux or an emulator like the uh, Zelda game we talked about last time. I still like that. But for Steam stuff, for Steam Deck stuff, yeah, I I think this is true. Yeah, I agree. I think with a game, it's one of the few things where, you know, you're not worried about the data you put in. It's not like a spreadsheet application where the data is actually the file that's important. A game is a game, and you're either playing the game or you're not playing the game. I see they're less important to be as purist as possible. It, it As long as it keeps running, I think that's all right. Speaking of, there's a great game that just came out this last week that's on sale, Isonzo, World War II, first-person shooter. Fantastic. It's actually got uh, Linux support, I guess. It's probably Steam Deck compatible but uh, i've been playing that throughout the week and it's fantastic and it's just amazing when a game actually has that tick box because most of my games don't they're all windows based but this one happens to and it's about one of the few that doesn't sort of balk at the multi-monitor experience but this idea that game developers would be crazy to release native linux games that does actually make quite a lot of sense if you can guarantee that it's going to work well on proton then that's sort of good enough isn't it Imagine you took it to a further extent than that, though. Imagine you said to Windows developers, why are you targeting Windows? Why don't you just target Proton? And then there's an abstracted layer for the PS3, the PS5, whatever. 
and they can all point the same thing. That's what some of the old Sierra games, the adventure games were built on a VM, the Scum VM, I think it was called. Like all those ones like Police Squad and Leisure Suit Larry and all that, they were all written to an emulator and then they just ported that emulator to various different architectures because they had the, obviously the Amstrads, the Commodore 64s, the early PCs at the same time. And they just wrote for that. And then that thing, oh God, it's Java, isn't it? Yeah, I was just thinking, <laughs> you're just describing Java here, aren't you? Yes, but in a, in a greater sense, no, no Java. <laughs> <laughs> well, Proton appears to be the present and probably the future of gaming on Linux, whether we like it or not. And at least most games work now. I think we should like it. It's a great success. Yeah. Right, well, we'd better get out of here then. We'll be back next week when it'll probably be news and stuff, but who knows. But until then, I've been Joe. I've been Venom. I've been Graham. And I've been Will. See you later.